Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm so happy to be with you today. Uh, we didn't mention we're on vacation, and that's why we're coming to Scotland, and I've always wanted to come to Scotland. Uh, you can't tell based off of my last name, which is Garcia, and I don't know if that's printed anywhere. Um, and it's there, right there. Maybe you were expecting somebody who looked a little different from me, but I'm very Scottish and very happy to come back home for the first time in some sense, and I just I really enjoyed my time here. And thank you so much to Rupert and the church leadership for letting me come and share God's word with you this morning. It is such a joy um, to, to come and visit you as well as connect with you on what is most important, God's very word, which if you know him, you hold that very dearly, and it is a pleasure to connect with you over that. We'll be in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6, verses 53 into uh, 723. It's on page 842 if you've used one of the Bibles from the back of the room. It is about defilement, and that's not because I thought you people were particularly defiled. It's just what I was preaching on back in Canada before we came. And so it was a recent sermon. And it's a long text. Actually, I don't know how long of text you usually read here, but it's a long one where I'm from. So uh, I, I invite you to summon all the courage you need to, to listen well and to read well, because that's, that's the most important part of what we're about to do, is you hearing God speak directly through his word. Before we approach his word, let us pray for his help. Merciful Father, we, we so often feel like you are silent so please speak loudly to us this morning. Have mercy on us. Give us ears that can hear your word, eyes that can read it, hearts that can love it and believe it. And have mercy upon your preacher this morning because he is sinful and weak and he needs you. And we all need you so desperately. So we ask for your help in the name of our great Lord Jesus Christ. So Mark 6, 53-7.23 When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, Jesus, and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored them that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. Verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when... When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Thus far God's word. Defilement. Defilement. We rarely use that word anymore, and maybe you use it here in Scotland often, but we rarely use that word. To defile something is what? It's to make it dirty and to ruin it. When you get something gross on your hands, you feel defiled. And so you go and scrub, scrub, scrub. Until all the ickiness is just gone. Uh, defilement can be mental too, can't it? Uh, maybe you've been in a conversation with somebody and you just wanted to scrub your mind of everything they said just because you feel gross. Or maybe even unpleasant memories of the past that are painful just still haunt you and you feel like you just want to be cleansed. Like there's no shower hot enough to get rid of that defilement. See, defilement can be mental, but it's still defilement. We can feel it. Well, this story from Mark's Gospel is about defilement. And Jesus gets quite fired up about it. And as usual, he's mad at the religious leaders of the day. Why? It's because the religious people viewed other people in society as icky. Uh, so even going to the market with the common folk, you know, you had to come home and you had to scrub, scrub, scrub. Because they were gross, they were icky, they were defiled. And, and this angers Jesus so much because it shows all of them to be a bunch of hypocrites. Because they love to point the finger out there. But they don't want to point the finger in here. They aren't brave enough to point the finger inside. And Jesus says that it is their own hearts that truly defile them. So let us see this morning, Edinburgh North Church, if we 
are brave enough to do what Jesus asks for us to look inside. Because spoiler or not, we can be, uh, if you're religious or not, I, I mean, you, you may be just as hypocritical as them. I can be. So let us see if we are brave enough to point the finger inside. Now, we're going to study the flow of this passage in three parts. First, uh, we prefer to see defilement as coming from outside. I think this is a common condition of humanity. We want to see defilement as coming from outside. Second, Jesus tells us the truth. He tells us defilement comes from within. Third, Jesus doesn't just rebuke us. He doesn't want us just to wallow in shame. He came to cleanse us. And that is the good news that we need to hear every single week. Or week. He wants to come and make us clean. So we prefer to see defilements coming from outside. Jesus says it comes from inside. But don't fear. He wants to make us clean. So let's jump in. Part one. We want to see defilement as coming from outside. We'll be looking at the controversy of Jesus' disciples not washing their hands after they come back from the market with Jesus. So look at verse 53, please. The setting. They land their boat in Gennesaret. Uh, five points if you know where Gennesaret is. Uh, Bible geography is quite hard. And there is the Gerasenes, Gadarenes, Gennesaret. Well, Gennesaret is a place on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where Jesus did a lot of his early ministry in Galilee. That's near Capernaum and Bethsaida. These are the places where Jesus healed people, did a lot of his teaching. So they knew him there. They knew his face. And so look at verse 54. They recognize him. They remember. They remember that woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And, and what did she do? She reached out and she touched Jesus and she was healed. And so then they start bringing everybody uh, to come see Jesus. Every sick person, every person with a limp, they would bring them uh, to the marketplaces just to touch Jesus. Verse 56. I want us to take this image. The image of, of the marketplace with these crowds. Visualize people with, with terrible disfigurements, open sores, coughing, limping, crawling along, covered in flies, and dirty hands just reaching out and groping, trying to touch Jesus. Hold on to this image. Because this is the answer for everything. Hold on to that image. So from this market, we then move into the controversy. Rumor has it that Jesus' disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. So COVID has really put us into a hand-washing mood. Uh, <laughs> the Jews of Jesus' day were very similar. Um, verse 3 uh, they were washing up before eating because, because, look at it, it was a tradition. They were hand-washing people. Tradition of the elders handed down. Why? Well, they weren't washing for the same reasons we wash. Although I imagine some of these fishermen uh, coming in from the, the docks were wanting to wash up all that fish slime before they sat down to eat their hummus and pita and whatnot. But they were concerned about germs. 
their concern was ritualistic, a ritualistic purity. It was a symbol. So where did they get this idea of coming in and doing this little symbolic washing? Well, back in the Old Testament, when God had rescued his people from slavery in the land of Egypt, and, and he brought them, he said, you're my people, and you're going to look like my people. I'm going to give you my laws. And his law, his Torah, was broken up into three sections. There's the civil law, which has to do with governance and, and how to rule. There's the moral law, don't lie, steal, cheat, worship idols, but essentially God's heart. And then there's the ceremonial law. And this has to do with all the little ways that God wanted his people to be distinct from the world around. Tassels on garments. That's not a moral issue. That was just an outward thing, a distinction. No mixed fabric clothing. Again, not moral. It was to make them a distinct people with a distinct look. No eating pork. Not moral. Just to make them different from the nations. I mean, in this text, Jesus declares all, food, all foods clean. Um, God wanted his people to be marked as distinct, as God's special family. Now, part of that, okay, Daddy had that idea, part of that ceremonial law was washing. Priests were supposed to wash their hands and their feet before they went into the temple for the tabernacle to do their priestly duties. Regular people were supposed to wash up if they had a bodily discharge. My favorite was if, if, if you were in a city and you found a random dead body out in the woods near your city, you had to call all the elders and they would come and they, they would stand around the body and they would sacrifice a bull and then they would wash their hands. All of these washings symbolized their desire to be cleansed by God because they recognized that they used to be slaves, slaves to sin, but now they were freed. But they still sinned and they needed to be removed from the, the, the sin of their past, the sin of their present. It was an appeal to God for a, a clean conscience, as Peter says. This is what made them distinguished as a people. They understood their sin and their need to be cleansed from it. That's why they washed. That's why they did the tassels. That's why they did the no pork thing. It was a desire to be clean before the Lord. It was an experience of God's grace. That's what made them distinct. So, take that. That's the ceremonial law. And now let us fast forward a few hundred years. And Israel continues to sin. And then they get thrown into captivity. And they're off in Babylon amongst them. There's pork meat everywhere. They feel the foul. Their children are walking away from the faith. It's a dark place. And then they come back. And they come back to Israel. And they say, never want to do that again. That was awful. So let us return to the law. And not just that, let us, let us come up with as many extra rules as we possibly can to never experience that, that again. And so they had the Torah, and then they developed from that the oral Torah. All the extra bits, the little checklists to do if you wanted to be a good Israelite. And hey, if it was good for the priests to wash their hands... We should all wash our hands. Everybody, wash your hands when you come home from the market. Let us never get exiled. 
See, they, that they received the ceremonial law as if it were a picket fence. You know, one of those nice little white fences, maybe call it something different here, I don't know. A little nice fence in front of your house. It's not really good for anything except keeping your toddlers and maybe a dog in on some toys. But it's like a little border. It says, this is our family. This is our house. This is our land. We have some rules here. There's a lot of love and a lot of grace. Come over. Come, have a cup of tea. That's what the ceremonial law was. It was a picket fence. But it's like the Pharisees had taken that picket fence and said, that wasn't enough. We can do better. Let us make a fence ten feet high made out of stone. That'll keep all the badness out there. It'll keep us safe. Wash your hands. So they weren't just doing that. Look at verse 4. They're scrubbing pots, cups, couches, and they're going wild with these ceremonies. But they're missing the very heart of the law, the appeal for God's grace. See, remember, it was, it was their appeal to God for a clean conscience. But the Pharisees were saying, we don't need that. We just need to be free from everybody else. Because the defilement's out there. Our conscience is clean. Everybody else is dirty. So side note, the name Pharisee uh, comes from the word, the Hebrew word, to separate. So they wanted to separate themselves from the dirty world around them. They saw themselves as superior because of that. They were separate. The father was out there, but they were kept safe behind that big stone wall. So we love to do the same thing. We love to externalize defilement. So from our, the, the comfort of our couches, we will point our finger at the television and, and, and outrage at, at organizations when abuse reports suffer or service. We will we'll point our fingers at other denominations whenever they seem to abandon the truth. We'll be like, oh, I'm glad I'm not one of them. I'm glad I'm part of the Nevasco Fellowship or the, this church or that church. We love doing that. We find safety in that. We love externalizing the defilement. We point our finger at wicked organizational leaders when we hear about them grooming or manipulating their staff. We point our fingers at boomers or millennials or Gen Z for all the ways that they get it wrong. We peer over our stone walls and we point our fingers and we wash our hands. Why? Because as long as the Bible is out there, and only out there, we feel safe. We feel clean. This brings us to part two. Jesus says defilement isn't just out there. Defilement is internal. It's in here. The rest of the text is Jesus' scathing rebuke. Uh, he is very upset with them. Look at verse 6. He calls them a bunch of hypocrites. See, they're acting out of accord with the teaching that they claim to teach. And he starts this rebuke by quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And it's a dangerous thing when you're getting Old Testament prophets quoted at you. And Jesus quotes Isaiah and saying in verse 6, look at what he says. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah was talking about the leaders of Israel who had become blind to their own sinfulness. 
And from this, the worship of God in the country had become meaningless, void, empty. It had become an external right. And it, it, you see it, you know it. You walk past the empty churches, or churches doing external rites. You know that as soon as you go that route where it's all external, there's no life in it anymore. It's just empty repetition. And the prophecy continues, and it says that one day God will put an end to this type of worship. Isaiah says he will come and judge evil leaders. He will open up the eyes of the blind. He will lift up the impoverished. He will clean the defiled so that people will know that God's heart is a God that runs toward those who are suffering, even from their sins, to the defiled. Whenever you distract people from that God who gives mercy, Jesus gets mad. Jesus gets very angry when you distract from God's grace. So that's why we see him doing this here. And then, from quoting Isaiah, Jesus moves on to this whole Korban thing in verses 9 to 13. So this is Jesus entering into teacher mode with the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's doing this to, to poke holes in their teaching. He's knocking down their stone wall. And he knocks it down by showing how inconsistent it is. So here's a case study he gives. Vows. See, they had a pretty rigorous understanding of vows. So Jesus pitches them the example of a man who takes a vow, but then regrets it after he realizes what he's done. Look at verse 11. You say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is korban. Well, let's stop here. Korban, it means something set aside for a special purpose. So like if my car was korban, it means like I probably wouldn't let you drive it. And I'd only take it to like church on Sundays or something like that. It's like taking something in your life and, and devoting it for a specific purpose. Um, it comes from the idea of offering up something to the Lord as holy. So, so this hypothetical man, he makes a vow to offer up whatever duties he owes his parents as korban, that then may be time or money or afternoons carrying the groceries in. If he offers that as korban, then verse 12, the scribes and Pharisees taught that that vow must be upheld. No more carrying in the groceries. Because look, yeah, the, the fifth commandment says honor your father and your mother. If you don't, like the scripture says, you know, you should be killed. It's that important. However, not if you make a vow not to. See, they, they made things all topsy-turvy. The Pharisees are showing their own inconsistency because they're claiming to teach the law, but only in ways that seem doable. These little external ways that are Nice and tidy. If you make a vow, keep it. But they aren't actually encouraging people to do what's in the heart of the law, which can be very messy. The heart of the law asks us to love God and love people. And, and that is a very, very messy thing. It's not nice and tidy to love people. But the Pharisees are tossing that aside for something more doable. Uh, that's why Jesus says in verse 9, please look at verse 9. He says that they're rejecting the commandment of God. By actually keeping vows and keeping a commandment, they're actually rejecting God's commandment. Verse 3, 13, I mean, they are making God's word void. 
empty, meaningless. Because they latched onto this idea, this simple little external idea that they can control. Valve. If you make a valve, keep it. And, and that can be so much easier to regulate than if somebody's honoring their parents. The church today needs to take heed. My denomination, which is the Presbyterian Church in America, even though I'm serving in Canada, they just sort of blow it over. My denomination recently formed a committee to study abuse. And uh, that we elders at my church, we've been studying this big report, and it, it studies abuse from theological uh, lens and, and from practical lens and, and all sorts of little nooks and crannies so we can really understand what is abuse. And it has been fueling my nightmares. One thing from the report sounded nearly familiar to this passage. The report uh, kept talking about how often in cases of spousal abuse, where one spouse is, is abusing their marriage partner, when the abused party goes to their pastors, the pastors tell them to stay with the abuser. Because marriage vows must be upheld. Vows, vows, vows. The abused are told to go home and face hell. Physically, spiritually, sexually, emotionally. And Jesus is outraged. Not to say vows mean nothing. Obviously they do, but abusers break vows. They destroy marriages. Abusers cause divorces. It is inconsistent with the heart of Scripture for church leaders to uphold marriage vows is more important than the people in those marriages. Vows. It is terribly messy, isn't it? But vows are less important than the people. Now look. Remember that Jesus is just using all this vow stuff as an example of the inconsistencies in their system, of externalizing what is wrong in the world. Let us not be guilty of doing the exact same thing by saying, ah, yes, bad church leaders are bad. Glad our hands are clean. See, we are just as inconsistent. We champion social causes. It's really big in Canada to like the right thing on Facebook, to put the right sticker in the window, to do this, that, the other. We champion social causes. Yet we neglect our own parents. They're part of the social milieu, right? That's an even more important bond. Maybe application from the sermon is some of you need to go call your mom. And we love to say so-and-so is so toxic. Do you say that here? Is toxic a common word? Toxic is just our new word for divine. We say people are toxic and we need to cut them out of our lives, keep them on the other side of the big stone wall. Now look, some of you have gone through real problems with people, uh, real manipulation and real abuse. And there really should be some distance between you and maybe parents or a workplace environment. That, that may be you and that may be right. That's a whole other thing. For many of us, we are way too quick to offer up our own lives as Corban, all the duties we owe to society and our families. So next, Jesus brings us to why this is the case, why we love doing this. He brings us to our heart. Verse 14, please look. 
He calls everyone together, and, and in verse 15, he says, There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile them. But the things that come out of a person are what defile them. Essentially, we're part of the problem. That's what Jesus says. That's what we have to hold on to here. We are part of the problem. It's like whenever you complain about traffic. When do you complain about traffic? It's when you're part of traffic. We are part of the problem. After he says this, his disciples uh, ask him about, Jesus, what do you really mean by this? What are you, what are you getting at with all this hard stuff in the Bible? Verse 18, he tells them, it's not what goes into you. It's not what comes from the outside that follows you. No, why? Because food goes in, food goes out. You, you learn that at a very young age. But so, look, verse 21. What defiles you is your heart. Let's stop there. Are we willing to listen to Jesus? Or are, are, are we going to be this morning people who say, yeah, I know, those, those other churches need to hear that. Or are, are we going to be the people who say, no, we need to listen to Jesus talking about our hearts. Why? See, I don't want to shut him out. I'm a pastor and I want to shut him out. So like, you can say you want to shut him out, right? I want to distract myself from this, but it's true. My evil thoughts, those are mine. From my heart. My inappropriate desires, those are mine. From my heart. Your desire to hide the truth, that's yours, from your heart. Your desire to talk bad about people, that's not from them. That's not because of what they did. That's from you. That's yours. That's from your heart. We look at the mess of our lives and we so desperately want to point the finger out there. But when we do that, we lock ourselves inside these big stone walls, and we're not alone in here. There is a defiling, wicked heart hiding in the depths, defiling everything. See, society's not going to tell us that. Sweet grandmothers are not going to tell us that. But Jesus tells us that. And we will hate him for it unless we understand why he does it. And one of the beautiful things about Jesus, and why he tells us this, he's not afraid of that. He knows our hearts. And he's not afraid of it like we are. Uh, this summer, oh, this was terrible. This summer, I was working in my office, and all of a sudden, I was hit with the most foul-smelling, putrid sewer gas I've ever smelled in my life. Um, our, our church office uh, it was bad. It was like paint was peeling off the walls. The flowers were wilting. My eyes were just burning. I had to flee. Um, so if any of you know how plumbing works, there's a U-bend in a pipe <laughs> that keeps... Uh, there's a grate on the floor in our office. And, and if you follow this pipe down, eventually you go in the sewer. But there's this little water barrier in this end of a pipe, and that keeps all the sewer gas down there and not in my eyes. And that little water barrier had just dried out. Never used. And it unleashed just the horrors of what lay beneath. It was horrible. Get the picture. Um, and I couldn't stand it. I had to flee. And that is exactly what it's like 
whenever we begin to see what lies beneath our hearts. We have to flee. We can't stand it because it's just terrifying and painful. That's why your first reaction is to get defensive whenever somebody points out your faults. That's because you just got to flee. That can't possibly be true, right? My heart can't possibly be that wicked. No, I'm the good one in the marriage. We're afraid of the truth. But we must understand that Jesus isn't afraid of it. That's what he came for. This brings us to our last point. It's not a long point, but it's the most important point. Why isn't Jesus afraid of our defilement? Because he seeks the defiled. He seeks the defiled because he wants to make us clean. If you're not a Christian this morning, I'm so glad you're here. This may be one of the strangest things about our faith. I encourage you to dwell on this. Most religions and philosophies in the world, they are wise enough to realize that if there's a God, he's got to be pure, he's got to be holy, he's got to be nice, clean, at least cleaner than us, right? He's got to be good. The shocking thing that the Bible tells us is that, yeah, God is all those things. Yet he does the crazy thing by coming down into our mark. The word became flesh. Why? So that flesh could be defiled. So Jesus could take our defilement onto himself. See, Jesus didn't come to just teach us some new system of coping, of the dark and dirty, stormy life. That's not why he came. He came to make us clean. To actually wash us clean. To make our hearts pure. See, we can wash our hands all day long, but we can't wash our hearts. So how does Jesus do it? Well, it doesn't say in this story. It doesn't say how Jesus cleanses us. But that's because the story isn't over yet. It's part of the gospel that continues. We have to follow the story. To the cross where he died. Covered in the sins of his people. He who knew no sin became sin, became defiled, so that we, with dirty hearts, could become the very righteousness of God, cleansed by his blood. This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, or, or, or double imputation, where, where he takes our bad and we receive our good, this great swap. This is the gospel, this is the good news, that Jesus has come to cleanse us. Now, we see hints of this all over our passage. Mark nestles this controversy, this Corban stuff, this part stuff. He nestles it between two stories, the first of which we read about the marketplace with all those grubby, dirty hands reaching out to touch Jesus. I asked you to hold on to that image. And then the, the next story that comes after this is actually uh, the, the, Jesus talking with the Syrophoenician woman, this Gentile far from God's clean people, and, and she refers to herself as a dog. If Jesus wants to make her his family, you know, this shows us that, that, that Jesus seeks the defiled, seeks the dirty, and he doesn't want to leave us like this. He wants to, to clean us, give us a clean, right wedding dress. He wants to give the dirty people, he wants to give us his last name. He wants us The night before Jesus died, he washed the disciples' feet. 
Can you imagine him standing there with a, a, a towel wrapped around him? And he's getting down on his knees. And he's, he's cleaning them. And he's taking all their their crud. And he's, he's taking it onto himself. Jesus came for the defiled. And he's come for you too. You don't have to fear the truth about yourself. He's not afraid. He looks into your heart. He sees your sin. And he says, that's mine. I'll claim that sin. He sees your sexual history. And he says, that's mine too. He sees your slander. He says, that's mine. He sees your foolishness. He says, that's mine. And he dies for it. And because he did that, God the Father looks at you and he sees the perfect heart of Christ in you. He sees Jesus all yours. You're a Christian. He's given you Jesus as his yours. He's given you cleanliness as his yours. Do you want that? Do you want to be clean? Then reach out. Reach out with dirty hands and touch him for the first time or for the thousandth time. Touch him. Jesus, you have shaken us. You have frightened us with the uncomfortable truth about ourselves. So let the comfort of your cleansing love confuse us. Let us dwell on this and give us great joy as we learn your ways and learn of your powerful grace and love that you have come seeking us.